If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, I'm excited my guest is Nir Barlev. He is the CEO and the co-founder of Allegro AI. He uh, holds a degree in law and economics from the University of Haifa. He he holds a Bachelor of Science in Software Engineering. He holds an MBA uh, from Wharton and probably a whole lot more. Uh, Welcome to the show, Nir. Hey, Byron. Uh, thank you so much. Um, honored to be on the show. So I'd like to start off with just kind of a signposting kind of question, which is about the nature of intelligence. And when we talk about AI, do you think we're really building something that is truly intelligent? Or are we building something that can mimic intelligence, but, but it, it can never actually be smart? Um. So I think that, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, AI, um, there's always the futuristic talk about, um, you know, general cognitive, um, general intelligence, which is attempting to really mimic uh, human intelligence. But um, apart from academia and, and maybe, maybe a handful of, of locations in the industry, uh, when we talk about AI in general, we're actually talking about the ability to solve specific problems um, and, and really actually marry um, a couple of things, right? We're, we're mimicking the ability to um, learn a specific problem and how to solve it. And we're marrying it with actually some of the things that computers have already and have always done better than humans, which is being able to manage and manipulate uh, uh, huge amounts of data really, really quickly and do calculations really, really quickly. And when you think of it like that, how do you, where do you think we are? Do you think we, we have key insights that are going to serve us forward? You know, that like we're knowing fundamental truths or are we, um, are we still like groping around in the dark? Like even the techniques we do now may seem antiquated and outdated in a few years. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, first I'd have to say that uh, uh, I feel less equipped to answer that than, you know, some of the professors in the universities as I'm coming at it from a very, you know, industry-specific uh, viewpoint um, and, and really practical viewpoint. And, and as, you know, from, from, from where I'm sitting, um, we are just at the beginning of a revolution around, again, being able to solve very specific problems with AI uh, much, much better. Uh, and that is going to open uh, you know, huge opportunities for us. Um, at the same time, we're very, very, very far away from you know, general uh, intelligence. Um, you know, so so yeah, I think that that's not necessarily um, going to get us there. The, the, the practices that we're using today in the industry and where the development is, you know, seems to some extent um, 
incremental in the sense that um, we're using you know deep learning as really the the forefront of of, of AI. Um, but there isn't anything that is revolutionary in what's going to happen in the next, I would say, you know, five to ten years. Uh, and those revolutionary things are going to come from academia. Um, what we're going to see is, is incremental developments in the science, but huge revolutionary developments in the applicability of the science that already exists. So your company is specifically trying to solve one problem relating to computer vision. So describe what you're trying to do and why it's so hard. Absolutely. This, this actually goes to the heart of the applicability of what we're doing. So, so um, let's start with, with uh, maybe a, a context on, on, you know, on AI and deep learning and, and why is it quote unquote intelligence. Uh, so um, when software engineers, uh, traditional software engineers try to solve a problem, uh, they are basically actually tasked with building out this workflow or uh, this idea of if, then, this, that um, for the software that they want to design, where the software, they need to figure out in advance what are all the different situations that the software is going to uh, incur and what to do there in order to reach a certain goal. And then once they design that, the task is really to simply translate that into something that a machine or a computer can understand, uh, into code. Um, whereas with AI and, and deep learning uh, specifically, um, the idea is that we have an algorithm called a neural network. Um, and that's, that's a very, very simplistic um, way to try to mimic how the brain works. Uh, uh, you know, literally, it's a, it's a network of neurons um, and nodes um, that through a process of training or experimentation, uh, aka learning, quote unquote, uh, builds this, um, you know, this flow all on its own. Uh, and obviously, then by definition, uh, it's already translated into something a human understands. Let me explain that a little bit further. So, um, Let's, let's, you know, let's take an example from computer vision. Um, if in traditional computer vision, we wanted to identify, um, you know, say a person or a face, um, what uh, the scientists and the engineers uh, were required to do is they were required to figure out what makes, uh, differentiates a human from anything else or what differentiates a, you know, one face from another. Come up with those parameters uh, and then turn them out and turn them into uh, mathematical formulas um, or um, uh, vectors that can identify them, uh, code that. So, for example, uh, a human, you know, may, and this is obviously very simplistic, has two legs and, 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 and two hands and, you know, protruding things, and maybe the texture is in this way or that, and, and obviously the color, uh, and there's always something that, you know, looks different on the head, maybe the hair. And they literally have to figure those things out to come up with some sort of mathematical identifier of a human. Um, where what deep learning would do is it will, you know, it will look at an image, for example, uh, and it would try to figure out those things by uh, looking at all the different possibilities to identify a human, uh, all the different traits of that image. 
um, and come up uh, with you know something similar. Uh, but what's interesting is that we as humans are notoriously have a notoriously difficult problem in really being able to describe um, what is different physically uh, in terms of something one thing from the other, uh, whereas a computer actually uh, isn't. Uh, they can look at an image and look at multiple other, um, you know. Mathematical uh, identification, um, uh, call it uh, ID prints that we may not even notice uh, as humans, um, and is, in that way, it actually can come up with a result that's much better. Um, so it's going to go and it's going to look at all the different ways um, that one, um, you know, that an object is different from something else, and codify that through a, a training process, which we can uh, dive in deeper. Um, so that's the way that it works. Um, the, the idea behind this, as you can see, that this is a very, very different paradigm than uh, traditional software. And the result of this is, is really two things. One is you need to have different people that actually manage this training process. Uh, manage this process where they feed the neural network information to try to figure this out on its own. and. Um, and, and, you know, that experimentation process that takes time, which is actually much closer to a scientific process than an engineering process. Um, actually, the work that they do is actually closer to what a chemist or a physicist would do in a lab than, than an engineer. Um, but, and once you figure out um, what you want to do, once you figure out uh, in this new paradigm that you want to adopt it because it gives you better results, Let's say you want to do a uh, build an autonomous car, right? And you figure out that uh, you know deep learning is able to much better identify different um, um, objects in the road that you need to be able uh, to feed into the system so the car can navigate. Uh, you're going to have to adopt this this paradigm. As with any process or paradigm, you uh, when you want to turn it into a product, you need to put an engineering back into place because a product is something that that's engineered. You want to scale up the process. You want to be able to repeat it. You want to be able to target a certain quality level in advance that you want to make sure that every unit uh, that is built is at the same level. You want to do it faster and more affordably. Um, and so you need, you need a production line or you need infrastructure or you need a tool chain. It's called different in different areas, but it's all the same. Um, um, and to build that, that production line doesn't really exist today commercially. Um, you know, that, and a great example of that is what Henry Ford did about 110 years ago with a Model T. Right? Henry Ford did not invent a new car. Uh, Henry Ford invented the production line. And so before the Model T or the, before actually the production line, only people like Rockefeller could buy a car. And after that, anyone could buy a car. Um, and you, because you could develop it on mass at a certain quality level uh, and at a very much lower uh, unit cost. That's the problem we're trying to solve. Um, give companies this um, production line and also enable the people who are very different in terms of the skill set, the research scientists, tools that they don't have. Um, if you have a master craftsman, if you have a master carpenter, that carpenter is still not going to be able to 
a far straight line if they don't have um, you know electric saw. Uh, similarly here, uh, you may have master research scientists. Uh, if they don't have the tools, they're not going to be able to develop the highest quality product. I gotcha. So I understand that what you're saying, that there's a lot of infrastructure we need in place in order to be able to scale a lot of these projects. But, but I'm curious about vision in general. Like when I look at a pantry full of food, I can see, you know, there's a can of beans and a cake mix. And, and I mean, what I'm doing is complex in the extreme, right? Like I'm using subtle cues of shading to see, oh, that's a circular can or a square box. I'm using a lifetime of experience that cans and boxes are in pantries. I'm using a lifetime of experience that, oh, that label is a well-known brand. Uh, I'm, I can spot things like, oh, there's a swollen can that's probably gone bad. There's a ripped box. There's a box that's fallen over. There's a box on its side. Oh, somebody accidentally put the dog's toy in here. Like all of that I do in a fraction of a second. And, and how do we teach computers to do all of that? That's, that's, um, um, that's exactly the point, uh, going back to what we said before, really, really, really at the beginning, the, the, the neural networks that are at the heart of this process are very, very simplistic uh, at, the, at, at the end of the day. Um, and it's exactly what you said. You're using a lifetime of experience, um, and you can then also deduce things really, really quickly, a split second, um, that you may have never even seen before. Right to make uh, um, to come up to conclusions, uh, um, and you can also use a very small amount of data. Uh, right? if, if you're if you're uh, if you're looking in the pantry, or maybe you think of uh, you know the canonical example of identifying cats and dogs. If you're a uh, you know a two-year-old child or a one-year-old child, and, and and you're seeing a cat for the first time, and you you're told that's a cat, that's it. You don't need any more cats to be able to identify cats. Well, because neural networks today are so uh, early on, um, what we need to do is we need to actually mimic this lifetime of experience. But we also need to do much more than just show it a single image of a cat or uh, one image of, of what's available in a pantry. We have to show a lot of images. And we have to do it in multiple ways. Uh, whereas we can see some things that are partially occluded or from different angles and different lighting conditions and be able to automatically remove, you know, the aspects that the lighting conditions can create on the object to be able to, to separate, you know, the, the, the visual uh, criteria that are coming from the, from the lighting conditions to the actual physical uh, criteria of that object. Uh, to do that for the neural network, we're going to have to actually expose it to lots of images in different conditions to be able to teach it to make that separation. Um, and so what happens is that really it's a process uh, where it's all about being able to collect data that is representative of the physical world, enough of that, and also be able to um, identify those edge cases. Those edge cases are those situations where the objects that you're trying to teach uh, aren't um, exposed or uh, to the you know the sensor in a very 
you know, simple way where it's, okay, it's great lighting condition, it's right in front of you, great. But uh, no, it, it may be in bad lighting conditions, meaning from a very bad angle, partially occluded, so that the system can still identify it. That's really the work. That's, those are the, the edge cases, and those are the, actually the biases. Um, and, and biases is another uh, angle that we need to look at, um, because again, it, it, think of it as something very, very, uh, extremely simplistic human. If you're looking, if you're trying to identify um, something in a pantry, um, you, there may be an object that's very rare there. I don't know, maybe someone put, uh, um, you know, it's a, it's a pantry for, um, for um, all kinds of things that have to do with food, and suddenly there's a, a detergent in there, right? Um, humans uh, have seen detergents before, or, and, and so they may know, okay, that actually doesn't belong, or I can identify it as a detergent. But if all I did uh, was, you know, expose uh, a neural network to lots of images of pantries that never had detergents in them, well, then that system is never going to be able to identify that as a detergent. Uh, or put another way, if we only expose it to a single picture out of, you know, millions of pictures of pantries to, to teach it, uh, to identify the, uh, you know, these objects in the pantry, and only one picture had an image of detergent because it's very rare, um, well, there's a trait for neural networks that they tend to forget, just like humans do. It won't be exposed to enough images of detergents. And so then the job of the research scientist is actually to set up a data set that to some extent reflects the reality, but also addresses these edge cases and biases. And for example, actually gives it more, slightly more images of these detergents um, than the data set actually has originally so that the neural network can identify these uh, weird uh, edge situations. And that's where 90 something percent of the work of the research scientists, once they've built an initial model, that's where they spend their time. And that's actually something where it's severely lacking today in, ter in terms of tools that are that can support that process. And so where are you in the life cycle of your company? Like how your company is about three years old. And so where are you, uh, you know, in, in development? So, um, as you may do, this is this is a uh, um, very very uh, tech heavy uh, problem that we're trying to solve, and so we've spent uh, quite a while on building the the, the tool chain or production line. Um, and we've we've you know we've gone out to market. Um, we've been engaging with customers and alphas and betas uh, for a year and a half now, and. Um, Really, at the end of, of 2018, we started um, uh, actual sales. Um, so we'd say, you know, we're at the early stages of commercialization. You know, it's interesting because computer listening has all the same exact problems. It has to, like, take a voice, and if a car drives by behind it, remove that car. It has to deal with letters that are very similar sounding, words that are homophones. Uh, do you think the same, whatever technology you're building, that assembly line, would be applicable to other problems in AI? Hmm. Yes, um, absolutely. So, so um, actually, if you think of deep learning, deep learning excels in, in those situations where we have um, 
we need to identify objects or uh, situations that are um, unstructured in nature, like like images or like audio files um, or like natural language processing, where it's very difficult to actually be able to uh, codify um, you know languages. And that's where deep learning excels. These are really the areas, uh, computer vision, uh, NLP, and uh, voice recognition. Um, our platform is actually very agnostic. It, um, it will help any company that's addressing structured data or what we call perception. That is, uh, any sensor data that's used to identify the physical world um, can leverage what we're doing uh, beyond uh, just computer vision. So audio, or, or think of you know sensors that are used in manufacturing and in multiple areas uh, can also benefit from that. So, you know, if you take a vertical area of of vision, like just recognizing the differences in faces, and there's a lot of good that can come out. I mean, a lot of bad too, but there's a lot that can come out of that. Um, you can uh, verify people's identity, and therefore they can you know, do banking on online with their device. You can find criminals walking, you know, there's all these things you can do in theory. How far along is that, that single problem of identifying faces? Cause you only have, you know, 7 billion people on the planet and granted sometimes they have beards and then they shave the beards and then they're wearing sunglasses. Then they have a tan, then they don't have a tan. Then they have a bandaid on their face and all of that. But where are we with that one problem? Do you think? From a scientific perspective, it's a solved problem, already solved. From a practical um, application, is there a single piece of software can that can now uh, uniquely identify every person? Not quite there yet. Um, but you know, when you think of who's the most advanced in that, it's actually China. And, and why is that? Because, because they have half a million you know, people that are unbanked that need to be able to conduct, verify their identity on their phones, right? Well, that's one side of the equation. The other side is, remember again, to be able to teach, uh, to build a, a detector that is a model for a specific problem, you need to expose it to a lot of data. And in China, uh, some of these leading AI companies have gotten access and, and the government has you know, also publicized this, has gotten access to literally billions of images of people, right? Uh, from millions uh, of cameras uh, across China and use that to actually build a model. Um, and so when you have so many images, um, uh, again, um, with enough time um, and skill, you can build a model. And in a way, uh, that's what they've done and they solved the problem. Those detectors don't work well on Western or Caucasian faces. Uh, or other types of faces because they don't have training data for that. Uh, and that's why the, uh, in the West and the U.S. and other locations were behind because, uh, you know, our culture takes privacy slightly different. But scientifically, it's a done problem. It's solved. That's a, that's a big statement because, um, I mean, like, explain that, why it's, like, solved. It's it, because it's simply a matter of what? It, the, the, the human face has enough uh, differentiating characteristics, unique characteristics, um, that, um, and we have enough 
you know, we have literally strong enough com computer sensors to be able to pick up on those uh, today, right? With the quality of video that we can get, uh, that's relatively cheap. Uh, you know, HD, 4K, etc. Um, that we can really build a model that can uniquely identify one person from the other. The only thing we need right now is to have enough a training set um, to train that so they can do the job. Um, and, and again, if you think of China, that's also a dumb thing. They have a big enough uh, data set. Um, if you're seeing what they're doing there, they already have applications where um, they can feed in, uh, um, they have cops walking around uh, with uh, glasses like, you know, the Google uh, Glass um, that um, have um, computer vision in them. Um, and they have a set of, of, of uh, criminals uh, that are fed and they can in real time identify those people in crowds of thousands and tens of thousands of people. And they've done that successfully. Um, if we um, in the US had access to such a huge diverse data set of people, uh, we could do the same thing. Uh, it's there. So, you know, I'm an optimist about technology. I really am. Anybody who reads my writing would know that. But it does strike me that we've always had privacy at all because there are just so many people. Like, no government can listen to all the phone conversations. It's just impossible. No government can follow everybody everywhere. It's just impossible. But with these technologies, both of those things are quite possible. Do you worry that these technologies are going to not only be misused, but misused at scale and that they're going to be used to, you know, by totalitarian regimes to lock in their control and silence dissident and dissidents and all of the rest? Or do you think we'll figure out a way out of that naughty problem? I, I absolutely worry about that. I, I think that actually um, um, we're probably at an age where privacy as, as we know it doesn't exist anymore. As, as, you, know, as you and I grew up with, um, and actually that manifests itself on because of these technologies and otherwise, if you think of Facebook, et cetera, and this has nothing to do with necessarily AI, but um, we now have enough data that's collected in locations where they're accessible and marry that with the ability to do, uh, you know, big data analysis and then AI, um, and um, really that in privacy doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I think we're beyond that in, in some extent, and we have to realize that. And um, I think that we need to come with, to terms with that and figure out um, what we do. And that's probably something that's beyond what I would give the technology companies to do. I think that at a, um, uh, this is something that uh, governments or, you know, this needs to be a wider conversation that happens at society. Uh, because if you give this to um, companies who are only motivated by um, making more money to their shareholders, uh, you may come uh, out at the other end with very bad results. Well, uh, me, uh, by the way, if, <laughs> if you ahead. just give it to government, if you just give it to the government, you may also come up with very bad results, right? Um, NSA, et cetera, um, you know, you talked about simply too many humans. I'm not sure that, um, I think we're already there where um, every single phone call uh, and everything that's, anything that's happening on the internet is already being monitored. 
Well, uh, it's a sobering place to leave this conversation. So, um, where, where can people keep up with what you're doing and with what your company, the, the, uh, the URL is Allegro.ai, uh, but other mm-hmm. than that, how can people keep up with uh, your fascinating work? Um, <laughs> I think that uh, certainly, you know, that's, uh, we, you can go to the website. We also um, um, actively um, blog um, and also write things on social media on LinkedIn. So you can go to our company um, profile on LinkedIn and, and follow us. Uh, we're also um, uh, starting to now um, appear at uh, you know trade shows and industry conferences. Um, obviously, that's slightly more to the industry level, but uh, you know we're we're uh, we're just this month we're going to be at the um, um, computer vision conference in in uh, Santa Monica at the Intel Partner booth, and then uh, next month in uh, AI Summit in London with NetApp. Um, so those are other places where you can uh, where you can keep uh, up with us, and it's all on the website and on our LinkedIn uh, profile. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating chat, and I wish you all the best. Um, thank you very much. Uh, it was a pleasure. If you enjoy this Voices in AI podcast, consider subscribing to the new Deep Dive into AI monthly report authored by Byron Reese. Each report offers exhaustive analysis of a key issue in AI. This is designed to guide and inform enterprise decision makers interested in, planning for, or already investing in AI. Visit gigaohm.com slash deep dive to try it for free.